0: Freaks. Yes. Invisible Choir explores detailed depictions of violence and murder and is not appropriate for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. My father's in prison. When he got locked, I ain't missing His trial went fast. That DNA match was the reason I couldn't testify. They said it could have been me, so they put my ass on standby. I had to wait and see, he told me. i oh,
1: Choices. We're faced with many of them every single day. Sure, most are small or insignificant. Trivial things such as deciding to make our coffee in the morning, or alternatively, driving down the road and shelling out cash for an overpriced latte out of sheer convenience. Regardless, a choice is made, one way or the other. The little ones don't mean much in the grand scheme of things, obviously. However, throughout the course of our lives, there come moments occasionally where the choices we make are extremely impactful, turning points that can very well dictate our immediate and distant futures even. Let's face it, there's no way we can control everything that comes our way no matter how hard we try. And as it relates to tragedy, all of us inevitably face some form of hardship. It just comes in varying degrees and magnitudes where some instances are much harsher than others. With that being said, we can't necessarily prevent it from arriving, right? What we do have power over, though, is choosing how to respond, how we handle this difficulty in our lives. How will we let those unforgiving in difficult times affect us? Will we let them break us and ruin our opportunity at a happy life? Or will we find a way to overcome I would like to briefly preface that this episode is a bit different from our usual content. While the subject matter of murder is still one of the foundational pillars behind this story, it will be from the opposite perspective, the side we seldom hear from. Think for a moment how many times you've heard of a specific homicide and wondered, what if that was me? What would I do if that was someone from my family? Well, we had the unique and thought-provoking opportunity to speak with someone who knows exactly how that feels, but not from the victim's family. This time, we spoke with a man who was forced to decide how he would move forward after his father was found guilty of first-degree murder.
2: So, all right, my name, everybody calls me Black Lick. I rap, I do music, but a little known fact, my name is Robert Fields II. My father was incarcerated when I was probably 21 or 22. So I, I had the luxury of growing up with a father and all the weird experiences that came with that that we can get into. It also, I think, uniquely prepared and informed me for what happened and what we'll be discussing today and how I used it. But nonetheless, my father is Robert Fields Sr. and I am the second.
1: Robert Fields II is a 39-year-old man hailing from Richmond, Virginia. He's better known by his stage name, Blacklick, a well-established underground hip-hop artist who's been active in his craft for over a decade, one who also has a rather impressive resume. Apparently, we're one of the few sources to find out Robert's actual legal birth name, since everyone calls him Blacklick, even his closest friends. It's just who he is and how it's been for a very long time. It just goes to show the importance he places on his music.
2: And it's funny, the first thing we we lead with is like name and age. Nobody found out my age in Richmond until I got interviewed by the Washington Post and then I got quoted in time. It's so weird to even discuss anything in my government name because my life is 100% Blacklick.
1: Blacklick has been quoted in such publications as Time Magazine, The Washington Post, and NPR for his efforts in his local community. At a nonviolent protest in Richmond, Virginia, after several small businesses had been looted, Blacklick caught the attention of many eyes and ears the day after the U.S. Capitol was stormed on January
0: 6th. So I ask all of you to ask yourself, what am I doing to make a difference now? Not with who, but how you yourself can do it. And the best way is by looking at your life and recognizing that you have to be the change that you want to see. You have to be the change that you want to see. Nobody owes you shit. Nobody's going to give you anything because you already got the greatest opportunity in life. The American dream is the opportunity to fail. Do you understand me? Y'all understand me back there? The American dream is the opportunity to fail. Failure is not death. I have failed so many fucking times that I lost count. But guess what? I'm still here, I'm still standing, I'm still building, and I'm still to by about a people I love.
1: The previous audio clip was actually the source of what created the buzz via several major media news outlets, when Blacklick, also known as Robert Fields II, commanded the crowd that afternoon through a megaphone. Besides being a musician, he's an activist, a teacher, and a public speaker. He's done TED Talks and shared the stage with such artists as DMX, Snoop Dogg, Immortal Technique, and Bone thugs and harmony Needless to say, Blacklick isn't exactly your run-of-the-mill rapper you knew from high school. Far from it, in fact.
2: I don't change. I'm more than just an artist. I'm a person who uses hip-hop as a medium to express several ideas, possibly in a creative way, but rooted in the same solid set of principles. And that's what guides me and is my compass, and I'm somebody who's compelled.
1: But the interview we sat down for together wasn't just about his ambition or accomplishments in music. Our conversation wasn't about how he signed to Strange Famous Records or how he was just featured on underground hip-hop titan Atmosphere's latest album. No, see, while those accolades certainly do apply here, this story isn't as much about Blacklick as it is Robert Fields II and his father, of course, Robert Fields Sr., Who is currently serving a life sentence in prison. In his respective creative space, the world already knows Blacklick. Therefore, we will refer to him as Robert Fields II from here on out, because no one has heard that story, as this is the first time he's told it. This is a tale about a man who had a wild roller coaster ride of a childhood and somehow made it out clean on the other side. Born into a lengthy history of crime and substance abuse, not only did he survive, he went on to achieve great things that, quite frankly, his childhood environment would rarely permit or allow. But anyways, without further ado, we'll allow Robert to walk you through where he's been and how he got to where he is today, all starting back when he was just a boy.
2: Normal people wouldn't react to the, how I grew up, the way that I have, and I never thought of that that way. The way I grew up, I was born in Loma Linda, California, and... We traveled from there. My father was a telecommunications installer. So I got an older brother. He's five years older than me. We traveled from there across the country following work. And we were basically, you know, heading east to manifest our destiny.
1: Robert, his older brother, mother, and father were constantly on the move. As a kid, Robert doesn't remember having a permanent home for a large part of his childhood. They traveled where the money was in his father's line of work, which meant moving from city to city with a family in tow, living out of some of the country's most unpleasant hotel rooms.
2: You can smell crack, smoke through the vents, or there's prostitutes. There's all kinds of just crazy drunken shenanigans. And I was real young during this time. My brother was like fifth grade to early middle school age, probably. And I was just like super young in elementary school. But basically, like, we moved and I'd end up in elementary school for two weeks, right? And I'd meet people. And I'd make friends and then I'd find out that they were, I would never get to see him again. And I, my brother took that hard. Me, I was like, well, this means I can just study people.
1: Sleeping bags on the floor, four people to a room while dad's off at work. Housekeepers would routinely steal their belongings while the family was out, getting something to eat or doing laundry. It's clear right off the bat that Robert did not have a normal childhood by any stretch of the imagination. Living in an almost accelerated reality, life came at him fast, and as a result, he wasn't like most other kids. While his brother was sad from regularly leaving friends behind, in and out of new schools constantly, Robert, on the other hand, found himself in a state of perpetual learning. As early as elementary school, he recalls thinking in a more pragmatic manner, as opposed to an emotional one. He used these rapid and fleeting interactions with his peers as a learning experience, soaking everything in and becoming very aware of certain social issues that most other kids weren't exposed to at that early age.
2: I took it as I can meet these different people, navigate and people watch and study like all these different things. Like I discovered race. In Florida, my mom looks white. She's mixed Jamaican. And my dad is as is, is black as my car. She's from Harlem. I remember I sat on a swing set and a kid asked me, is, he said, is you black or is you white? And I was like, wait a second. And then the other girl was like, are, are we talking to your black side or your white side? And I was like, yo, what's going on in these kids' houses? And at the same time, I'm living in like hotels.
1: Before Robert could open up a dialogue about race and classism there on the playground, these kids became a distant memory. Soon after, the Fields family would be packed into the car and on their way to the next town.
2: I was somebody who didn't want clothes. In fact, for back to school, buy me a video game. Because you know, I don't care how I look around these kids. And every school that I went to, I didn't care. But I remember I'd go to a school and get student of the week. The second week I was there. And I wouldn't even be there a the week after that.
1: This is how it went for years. But Robert never saw it as anything negative. It was just life as he knew it. So in a way, it was his normal. He found a solace in solitude, while his brother was out hanging with local kids who he'd soon have to say goodbye to. Robert was content playing a street fighter alone at the hotel. It was all about perspective, and even amongst the chaos, in his words, his needs were met.
2: And I lived like this forever. We had cats. We had pet rats. You know, we we you had crackheads who were trying to fence TVs for food stamps or switch food stamps for money. We had all these things, piss in the elevator, you know what I'm saying? But you also had a swimming pool in the summer. You had Sega Genesis, you know what I mean? You had Super Nintendo.
1: Video games soon became Robert's escape. And while the Fields family were in and out of dingy hotel rooms across the U.S., it was understood that it was for the betterment of their family and for future financial stability. While his father did have a lot of personal issues, Robert does remember his dad as a solid and dependable provider.
2: My parents, they fight a lot. My father he is a severely productive, high functioning alcoholic who will drink like till he passes out at four in the morning and be up at six and put his boots on and go work all day. He might not come home sometimes, but that check will come. At the same time, my mom, she works retail gigs and small jobs, and her whole thing was that she wanted to spend time with the kids. My dad hated that my mom was never career like oriented, but it was because she really wanted to be with us.
1: Dad went to work, mom stayed home with the kids, wherever that impermanent home happened to be at the time. Robert's mother was an inclusive, compassionate, and loving caretaker, while his father was rough around the edges to say the least. He was aggressive, short-tempered, and walked around with a proverbial chip on his shoulder and a very serious demeanor. In retrospect, during this time period anyways, Robert recalls an example of why this may have been the case.
2: My dad did not play. In the world of work, especially during that era in telecommunications, for a Black man to speak professionally and to be highly skilled, if not more skilled than his superiors, there were times I'll never forget when my dad got interviewed for a job on the phone in D.C., got told it was time for him to come up and get his like his uh in-person interview because they were going to hire him. And when he got there, they were like, you're Black. That shit, that, that hit. You know what I'm saying? I wasn't somebody who was like, oh, my God, racism. I was just like, yo, this world... You know, this world is beyond retaliation. This world's already retaliating to you. So you've got to recognize the best way to manage your aggressive presence.
1: It's hard to imagine even conceptualizing ideas on how your father might better recognize his aggressive presence as a fifth grader. Robert was introspective. There's no question about it. He also expressed his opinion that in regards to this particular obstacle his father faced, that it wasn't as much about race as it was the rat race. Regardless of how you want to look at it, these were very real-life scenarios his family was experiencing. Robert Fields Sr., being the prideful, hard-working breadwinner he so desperately tried to be, still had a wife and kids living out of hotel rooms while he worked around the clock, trying to scrape together a decent take-home wage. The stress started to compound, and Robert Fields II began observing once again, this time analyzing his father and the family dynamic. A few months later that Christmas, something happened that would change Robert forever. Inside room 340 at the Red Carpet Inn, he and his brother were misbehaving, and their father decided to discipline them. But when his older brother started to cry, Robert just stared at his father and laughed. A switch was flipped. And little Robert wasn't so little anymore.
2: We got that whipping and uh, my brother cried and I laughed. And then it came apparent to me that my parents were just people. My childhood just kind of turned off. And I realized, holy shit, I'm just a young person. I'm not a kid. I'm just a young person who has to survive this era of my life in order to experience what this world has planned for me as an adult. And that was how I lived. I was in fifth grade. <laughs> yeah, it ended.
1: It ended he says while laughing. It simply turned off. He remembers it clear as day. From that moment on, fifth grader Robert Fields II felt as though he weren't a child anymore. And while of course he still was in a literal and legal sense, his mind began processing information differently from that moment on.
2: And I'm not even going to get my chance to pitch until I'm like 17 or 18, probably. So I got to use all these years that I can to uh, absorb as much game ahead of the actual game as possible. And so I stopped thinking like a child. And that didn't mean I killed my imagination or anything. It just means that I killed a lot of my childish emotions. I haven't cried since fifth grade, man. Like, (laughs) and people say there's a problem there.
1: Robert was forced to become hardened due to his circumstance and environment. He began paying closer attention to his parents as well, observing how they struggled, how they fought, and how much overall stress was present in both of their lives. The already existent practical outlook Robert had was only maturing each day, seeing people and things for who and what they truly were.
2: I just knew that like, yo, this is as good as it's going to get. As far as your parents don't know what they're doing, they're people.
1: The Fields family continued traveling, following wherever Robert Sr.'s telecommunications career took them. There were sporadic periods where a townhouse would be rented for a couple of months, but then it was back to hotels and life on the road. Eventually, they settled in Richmond, Virginia. But before the family purchased their first long-term residence when Robert was in 8th grade, he remembers meeting his lifelong best friend, Pete Woody. When he went over to Pete's house for the first time before moving into a house of his own, Robert was blown away by what he saw.
2: I'll never forget. I walked in. I was like, holy shit, like, oh, just you guys live in this big ass place? And then you guys have your own bedrooms? And like, there's an upstairs and then, and then there's a thing above and an attic? Like, are you serious? That blew my mind, but it didn't make me feel poor. It just made me feel fortunate because I lived in one room and, and the kitchen was also the bathroom.
1: Even after seeing his friend's nice big house, it wasn't a feeling of envy that overtook him, but rather gratitude. Robert was grateful that his hotel rooms had always been one floor with a kitchen and bathroom and close proximity to one another. In his mind, it just meant he didn't have to go far. Everything he needed was there and easy to access. He was humble and this way of life had molded the way in which he saw the world now. In a way, he was lucky, though, because while his family would eventually move into a home similar to that of his friend Pete's, ironically, things were only about to get worse from here. Robert was going to need to find a way to harness all of the positive energy he had for what was yet to come. How do you solve a crime in reverse when you believe that someone was murdered but have no clue who the victim was? We have to do our job, and we have to find out
0: who did they kill, if it's possible. How are we going
1: to do that? I'm Jake Halpern, and this is Deep Cover, The Nameless Man. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Life became a bit more mellow for the Fields family by the time Robert entered middle school, at least for a period. Robert Sr. was doing well in his career. He'd found consistent work as an employee for Comcast and was commuting from Richmond to Washington, D.C. regularly, but his wife and children finally had a stable home base. The house was coincidentally right up the road from the last hotel they'd lived out of as a family. Robert didn't think anyone at school knew his family was living out of hotels until his guidance counselor approached him in the hallway one day. She's
2: like, how does it feel to have your own room? And I was like, bitch, what?
1: As content as Robert had grown, entering his teenage years, he remembers feeling lonely. He didn't have too many friends because besides Pete Woody and a few others, he kept largely to himself and continued playing video games there in his new bedroom.
2: Most of my time was spent with a controller in my hand or food in my mouth. And I got fat as a kid, and um, I got sick.
1: Not the sick, as in Robert had a cold or the flu. He was diagnosed with HSP, or Henoch-Schonlein purpura, a disorder that causes the small blood vessels in your skin, joints, and internal organs to become enlarged and bleed. It's sometimes referred to as a modern-day scarlet fever, but if not treated properly, HSP can be more severe and potentially lead to kidney disease.
2: During that time, I got like unenrolled from school and stuff like that because I'd been gone for so long. They thought I gave up. And um, that was a moment where, for me, things shifted again because that was my first dance with mortality, because there were so many serious you know, possible consequences from having that illness.
1: Robert would eventually end up making a full recovery and began attending classes again, However, this was another moment in his life that became a turning point of sorts. He began harping on the concept of life and death, realizing how fleeting human existence truly was, something, again, not a lot of 8th grade kids were considering. He began exercising and was becoming more conscious of his overall health and well-being. His brother, on the other hand, wasn't necessarily doing all of the right things. He started hanging around the wrong crowd. He began selling drugs and started sporting flashy jewelry and driving nice cars. Dad would continue to bring home a check for the family, but at times it was unclear if he was actually working or if he was off doing something else. The family wouldn't see him for several days at a time on several occasions, and when he was home, his volatile drinking habits remained and at times worsened. Alcohol was Robert Sr.'s vice, or at least the one his family was most familiar with. Robert remembers how much strain this put on his mother and father's relationship, as well as contemplating how these people came to be husband and wife in the first place.
2: You know, that was the kind of things that would happen. And then there were times like where he would decide to get drunk instead of coming home to do whatever we wanted. You know, that would create rifts in their relationship and challenges. But there was also that weird distance of how do these people end up together and how did I get here? Because they don't, they don't like each other. They love each other, but they don't like each other at all.
1: It was a different time, a time where a lot of married couples stayed together, if only for the kids. And that notion wasn't lost on eighth grade Robert. And so he began to feel somewhat responsible.
2: It's my fault. You know, it's my fault because why do they have to do half the things they have to do to take care of me and my brother? It's my fucking fault. You know what I'm saying? That's how I took it. If I didn't exist, these people wouldn't have to spend their money on this shit.
1: He wasn't emotional in coming to this conclusion, just realistic, he says. He viewed his parents' tumultuous marriage as something very matter-of-fact. He saw it as simple math. And in this equation, Robert believed he and his brother were the variables that resulted or at least contributed to their parents' unhappiness. As sad as it sounds, it was just another practical realization from the empirical evidence he had gathered. As Robert grew, his mind continued maturing well beyond his age. He was understanding things on an even more elevated level of thinking by now, not only examining the complexities of his parents' relationship dynamic, but of his family's history as well. There were things that weren't discussed in the home for obvious reasons, but Robert was a keen listener. He picked up on the clues, snippets that revealed a dark past before he was even born. He would archive those little sound bites mentioned in passing from family members. Eventually, he put the pieces together himself. Somewhere along the line, Robert learned that his father had actually witnessed a murder when he was very young. And to make matters worse, it was Robert Sr.'s father who was the killer and had murdered his own wife. He
2: was so young when it happened and he saw it happen that they had him in like the hospital or whatever as boy.
1: Robert Sr. witnessed his father kill his mother when he was a very small child. He was then put up for adoption to be raised by an entirely different family while his father was sent off to prison. It's unclear if Robert Sr. remembers this event in any capacity, yet there is certainly some terrifying foreshadowing that has yet to come in his story.
2: Yeah, so that's what my parents are, you know. Like my and I didn't know these things about them until like later on. I get little pieces of it, but my dad basically witnessed, you know, a family murder, and my mom was somebody whose mom abandoned her and and was in an an orphanage or whatever and got adopted, got raised, had black features because he was mixed, and then um was with another guy who turned out to be a, my, my brother's dad that I didn't know I had a different, I had only a half brother until I was like 20 something. And that dude supposedly murdered somebody. And then she met my dad because they thought that she was involved in like him getting arrested. She was on the run and met my dad while she was trying to hide from them with my brother. And then she and my dad got together and my dad raised my brother as if it was his son. And then I happened and then we became a family.
1: Around eighth grade, Robert Jr. learned that his father witnessed his own father kill his mother. Before Robert Jr. was even born and before Robert Jr.'s mother ever met Robert Fields Sr., she was in a relationship with a man who was convicted of murder as well. This man was Robert Jr.'s brother's dad. And when that man went to prison, word got out that Robert Jr.'s mother had sold him out to police. She then feared for her life and went on the run with Robert Jr.'s little brother at the time was just four years of age. This is when she met Robert Fields Sr., who vowed to protect her from whoever she thought was coming after her. The trio then skipped town, and the two eventually got married and became the family they are today. Still with us? To recap, at this juncture, there's two homicides that have happened in this family already that we know about. By high school, the Fields' living situation would be uprooted once again. The family moved into another home up the street, but from the sounds of it, some of the old hotels may have actually been more comfortable than this new place.
2: On my birthday, we moved to Rockwood, and when we moved to Rockwood, we had no electricity. And so my birthday was spent in a house with no electricity.
1: Robert blew out the candles on his cake that day to only be left in darkness alongside his mother and older brother. His dad wasn't around. He was working a lot more now and had worked his way up to an executive position within the company. But for some reason, the lights were off and it felt as though they were still struggling financially. Robert Sr. had a better salary now than he had ever had before. Yet Robert Jr. remembers it certainly didn't feel that way.
2: That was kind of the thing. And then it just kind of went back to the same cycle. And by then, my dad became like an executive. and He was almost, almost making six figures, I think. And yet we were like, we didn't have money. Like we were still brokeish. You know what I'm saying?
1: Still, no one in the family asked any questions. Around ninth grade, Robert met his friend Barnes, a kid at school who was making beats and would soon become an integral part of his life. Barnes was somewhat of a loner, just like Robert was. And the two hit it off immediately. Soon they began making songs together. Robert began working around this time as well. He got a job at GameStop, where he would work all through high school. Upon graduation, Robert's older brother was getting into more and more trouble in the streets. Luckily, due to their father's current status in the company, he was able to get him a position at Comcast and put his life of crime behind him. Aside from Robert Sr. not being around much and the fact that he was still a high-functioning alcoholic, things seemed to be going all right for a while. After graduating himself, Robert II and his father's relationship began to change. When he was at the house, they would cook meals together and the two began to bond in a way that they never had before.
2: Me and my dad finally got cool. Like I look at that time where it was like, holy shit, like we were friends.
1: They were getting along, laughing and cooking meals together. Robert Sr. had always been the intimidating stoic figure who barely spoke. But Robert II knew better than to think life was going to be all roses and that everything was suddenly fine. His life had never been that way, and he knew it was only a matter of time before the chaos reared its ugly head once again. And that time came soon enough when his father did something that would change the course of the entire Fields family's lives forever.
2: He got drunk and got into a fight with my mom or something, and he went and he trashed his whole office. Like the whole fucking thing.
1: After an argument with his wife, Robert Sr. decided to get extremely intoxicated and drove over two hours from Richmond to D.C. late in the evening while his office was closed. He entered the building and began destroying everything in sight, tipping over desks, filing cabinets and computers. This initial fit of rage would mark the beginning of Robert Fields Sr.'s fast decline into a rapidly downward spiral
2: when he did that, they said, all right, we're going to review you. And then we're going to decide if we're going to fire you or not. And my dad, you know, he was, um, he was big in, in that company, you know, he was the shit. So it was like, you're not going to fire me. And then they fucking fired him.
1: Robert Sr. was then out of the job. He'd lost everything that he'd worked so long and hard for because of one drunken outburst where he destroyed company property.
2: That was the moment because then it was like, well, what are you going to do, you know?
1: Losing his job with Comcast didn't exactly humble Robert Sr. Instead, he became bitter and even more angry and began blaming everyone else for his own missteps. For a while, he even refused to look for employment altogether. When he did take a glance at the classified section of the newspaper, his attitude was that every position henceforward was in some way beneath him.
2: You're never above employment. You know what I mean? That's how I felt. And so, you know, during that time, our relationship, we still stayed tight, but it was hard for me to look at him in that way, you know, and he was saying and thinking this way.
1: Robert Jr. was fresh out of high school and represented the voice of reason to his own father. He reminded him that he was the only one to blame for his current situation, not to mention the kinds of jobs Robert Sr. was criticizing or jobs similar to what his wife had been doing explaining that he was insulting her in the process of his own failures. His father, who he had always viewed as the tough provider, was now broken, vulnerable, and becoming desperate. Robert Jr. was always someone who relied on his senses and listened when the universe was trying to tell him something. This time, he started to get a gut feeling that something big was on the horizon, and that didn't mean he was anticipating it to be a good thing. Robert wasn't sure what was going to happen, but whatever it was, he knew it was right around the corner.
2: I'm getting closer to my time, and I felt like I was getting closer to my apocalypse. I know something's going to happen to me that's going to change everything, right? But I don't know what. That's I've always carried that in me during that era. It was like, yo, the thing is going to happen. I was going to be fucked, and then it was going to be time for me to decide. I'd live on it, I'd live under it. Didn't, didn't know what at all, but I knew it was coming.
1: It was a rough year for the Fields family when Robert Sr. lost his job. But eventually, he picks himself up and decides he's going to start his own telecommunications business. During his tenure at Comcast, he'd made a lot of connections and started installing the very same technology. He always had for other small, independent businesses. While this was a step in the right direction in the spirit of entrepreneurship, Robert Sr. was still drinking every day. He also made some pretty impulsive purchases, like a boat. Meanwhile, the business wasn't as profitable as he had hoped. He was struggling to get contacts and started coming home even less than before. He wasn't happy at home and found every excuse there was to be away from his wife and children. Robert II knew his dad was not in a good state mentally. He could see it on his face in the rare instances that he would catch him at the house. He wanted to talk with his dad, but could never seem to find the chance, as he was rarely around. One night, Robert went out to a house party with some friends. When he returned, he was surprised to see that his father was home. He knew that if he was ever going to speak to his dad about whatever was going on in his life, this was the opportunity. So he seized it.
2: I'll never forget. I said, yo, I was like, I'm not coming down on you, trying to tell you how to live or nothing, yo. but we're all just kind of worried. And, you know, we don't know where you're going. And I stood outside his bedroom door. The lights were out. He was in there in the dark. He's like, I don't believe in God and I've given up. That's where I am right now. I was like, you know, you're the one person I know who doesn't give up. He expressed to me that he was in a place that he'd never been in where he, he was completely broken. He felt like he lost it all. And I was like, how is that possible? You still have lust? And we've been through so much. I just never had heard him speak from such a dark place.
1: Robert was taken aback. His father stood before him there as a defeated man. He tried to reassure him that everything would be all right in time, but it wouldn't be. His premonition, the apocalypse Robert Jr. had been anticipating finally arrived roughly one week later. A revelation that came when he got a phone call from his older brother, while working at GameStop,
2: I'm at work, and I get a phone call. I'm on the phone with my brother, and he's like, "Yo, we call my pops Black," and he's like, "Yo, you ain't gonna believe this shit." And I was like, "What?" Well, he's like, "Black just called on the phone, right?" And he was like, "I got stopped by the police," and I was like, "All right, well, what is it? DUI or some shit?" Because you know he had a few of those, nothing new. And I, and he was like, "Nah," he's like, "I could have swore I heard the cop in the background say something about a murder."
1: Robert genuinely didn't believe what his brother was telling him over the phone. But before he had much time to even process the information, an unexpected visitor entered the GameStop there while he was working.
2: That's just like uncharacteristic of this man. I'm like, all right, well, keep me posted. And I put the phone down and I look and it's a fucking detective at my job.
1: A homicide detective walked into GameStop and began questioning Robert there about his father and a murder that had just been committed.
2: I found out what was going on. I wasn't going back to the spot until it was clear. They came through and searched the crib. My pops was in Hariko right getting interrogated. They would taken his truck, and it was for some murder that we were like, who, what, like, how, when, you know? Because all we knew was that he was going out and working. He was staying where he was staying and coming home. So we wouldn't even know who he would have had beef with.
1: He, his brother, and mother had no idea what was going on. They knew this man was having a difficult time, but under no circumstances did they ever think he could kill someone. In their eyes, this all had to be some sort of big mistake. Investigators combed through the residence, eventually clearing the property before the family was allowed to re-enter. Robert and his brother went back to the house, rolled up a joint, and tried to assess what was actually happening. But before the joint was even lit, a knock came at their door. The investigators had returned, this time to search the home again.
2: The cops came back and they saw the weed seeds and they were like, look, we're not here for the weed. We don't give a fuck about you having weed. This is a murder case. They searched the house and they they found a pair of shoes. They found some sneakers out in the backyard.
1: The blue Nike tennis shoes belonging to Robert Fields Sr. reportedly had blood on them. Blood belonging to Karen Orlana, the woman who had just been found dead in her apartment two days before.
2: My father was doing drugs with this woman named Karen Orlana. She was in the lakeside area of Henrico County, and he would go over there and hang out with her because he had done some cable installations in that area previously through his business. They said that he was over there and that what happened is that This guy named Scott Giordani was the person who was supposed to be delivering some drugs to them. Now, my pops and this lady were smoking crack and drinking and doing coke and shit, right? Some real dark shit. I didn't even know my pops got down like this, right? So hearing all this to me is like, get the fuck out of here, bro. So apparently Scott showed up with a pack that was light and he and my pops got into it. Scott, he left. Pops kept the pack and that night they got into it.
1: According to the case file, Robert Fields Sr. was at Karen's residence to purchase crack cocaine. Robert was unhappy with the size and amount of the bag of crack provided by Scott. And later that night, when it was just Karen and Robert, something terrible happened.
2: That night around 11.30, something like that, late at night, they say my pops' truck was parked outside of her place and that Deborah's daughter heard what sounded like a basketball being bounced for several minutes. There was some screaming and shouting earlier, and then that, and then it was quiet.
1: Deborah was Karen's friend and neighbor, whom she'd shared a wall with in the neighboring apartment. After the noise that was coming from next door stopped, Deborah and her daughter went to sleep. She then woke up sometime later and noticed that the truck, believed it to belong to Robert Fields Sr., was now gone. When Deborah couldn't get a hold of her friend, she'd eventually make entry into her apartment unit the following day, on September 15th when she'd make a gruesome discovery.
2: Deborah was going to take Karen to the store, and that's when she discovered Karen's body.
1: A medical examiner would ultimately rule that Karen's cause of death came the result of blunt force trauma to the head and chest. The report states that the injuries Karen sustained were consistent with that of a stomping or blows from a large blunt object, something, quote, more robust than a fist. That analysis alone doesn't properly characterize the sheer brutality of the attack that took place.
2: When they came into the crime scene, there was a a partial bloody footprint, I believe. They found her body in the bathtub with a towel over her from chest down and a, a towel over her face and that she had been like pulverized, beat, with an object they would have thought, either a fist or a blunt object to the point where her face was like crushed in places. And then she had been mutilated afterwards, post-mortem, where her nipples were cut off and put in weird places some shit, and she had been stabbed in the vagina and in the ass or something like that, right? Like a bunch of weird, dark shit, dude.
1: Robert II's prophetic doomsday had finally arrived, and he was right. The apocalypse was here. Robert Fields Sr. was charged with first-degree murder and the death of Karen Orlana. But the level of brutality and gruesomeness in this killing is what made it that much more difficult for family members to believe. Robert was always an intimidating and difficult figure to be around. But was he actually capable of this? Karen's DNA was on his tennis shoes, and the bloody footprint at the crime scene were said to have matched those very same Nike tennis shoes that had been seized from his home. But how could this be? The Fields family had no knowledge of Robert Sr., never even knowing a woman named Karen until she was found dead. They also didn't know that Robert Sr. was off smoking crack cocaine. It seemed he was off living a double life, a life the rest of the Fields family were completely in the dark about. Robert Sr. was processed and booked, but perhaps the most shocking thing of all is that from the beginning, he maintained his innocence, claiming he didn't commit the murder.
2: I went and saw my dad in Noriko County Jail, and I sat down and I looked at him, he looked at me. And that was the first time, because you know, one of my weird things was like, are these people really my parents? You know what I'm saying? Is this really like, despite, we obviously, but I mean, is this like the connection? And like, is it real? And I saw for the first time, like how our faces matched. And we looked at each other and he just said, this shit is fucked up, I ain't doing it. And I was like, like, all right, you know what I'm saying? Well, what do we do? And, you know, he wanted to call his shots. He was always up front that he wanted to call his shots and all this shit, right? So I was like, I got to respect it. I can't do anything to help you because I don't know anything. And you've been I was like, you know, you've been gone. So, like, all I can do is explain that you haven't been around. And he was like, that's all you should do. Just tell the fucking truth because I ain't been around. So I was like, all right, well, that takes care of that part.
1: Robert Fields Sr. was eventually offered a deal. He was looking at 12 years to plead guilty to the crime, but he refused. He chose instead to go on trial and continued proclaiming his innocence while facing the very real possibility of spending the rest of his life behind bars. When the Fields family was trying to come to grips with what Robert Sr. was being charged with, they were simultaneously preparing for trial, which would come roughly one year later. Robert Jr. actually wasn't even allowed to attend the first couple of days of the court proceedings, as he had actually been swabbed for his own DNA when investigators paid him yet another visit at GameStop. There was a brief period where Robert Jr. was actually a person of interest in the case, because his DNA was so similar to that of his father's. This suspicion was quickly dropped, however, and he was allowed to attend the remainder of his father's trial. When that time came, it wasn't looking good for Robert and his family. Robert Sr. had been placed at the scene of the crime in the hours leading up to Karen's murder. They also had the shoes and that bloody footprint. The Fields family was told by the defense attorney that this case was up in the air. It wasn't clear yet if there was enough solid evidence to prove beyond a reasonable doubt that Robert was in fact the killer. For instance, his DNA was never found on Karen's body, among other things.
2: Inconclusive footprint, though consistent with model and design of shoe. Unable to prove that there was any sort of weapon or instrument used, or that my abrupt my father's hands or feet had any sort of damage to show there was a physical contact or altercation, especially to the point in which this woman had been brutalized.
1: The footprint found was only a partial print, but the shoes found at the field's property with Karen's blood on them was going to be difficult to explain away. Robert's argument was that the shoes had been taken from his home during one of the searches, and were planted there by police in the backyard during a later search. According to the defense, there were also issues with the chain of custody regarding the Nike tennis shoes, including the location of where the evidence had been stored prior to the trial. It was alleged that the sneakers had been left in an unlocked room before they were even processed, and it was the defense's argument that this was a clear breach of protocol. Additional testimony that impacted the defense's case was provided by a former cellmate of Robert's. He testified that Robert Sr. told him in jail that he murdered a woman over a drug deal gone bad, and that he would do it again if presented the chance. This intelligence, however, was lofty at best. The man testifying was a career criminal and had taken similar deals in the past to lessen his current sentence. Robert Jr. tells us that while this man wasn't offered a deal in this case, he conveniently walked out of prison just days later. After all arguments were heard as the trial neared the end, there was still a great sense of uncertainty there in the courtroom. Robert Jr. remembered feeling like it was a 50-50 shot, as to whether his father might walk free or spend the rest of his life in prison. During a short recess, before the verdict was read aloud, Robert Sr. was escorted back to a holding cell. During this time, he crossed paths with his former cellmate, the man who had just testified against him. Robert Jr. believes what happened next would play a major role in dictating the outcome of his father's trial.
2: The judge is explaining, you know, whatever's the next steps, and then the bailiff comes out like he's hyped, and it's like I I needed to, 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 to add to this and he pulls out a notepad. He says that my dad said you fucking snitch, I'ma see you later.
1: Robert Sr. had verbally threatened the man who'd just ratted him out there on the stand. And this incident wasn't going to be ignored as it pertained to the trial.
2: It's now being said that my dad is violently threatening. They read that in front of the jury and you can feel the entire courtroom shift. And we're just standing there like, well shit, what's gonna happen now?
1: That was it. That last outburst there in the hallway may very well have been what sent Robert Sr. away for life. As just moments after that recess, the verdict would be handed down.
2: We go back in and I watch him say, guilty. And they go, life. And at that moment, I watched everything in my life become, every, there was then and then there was now.
1: Robert Sr. was sentenced to life in prison for the murder of Karen Orlana. The victim's family showed a great compassion towards the Fields family during the brief interaction outside of the courtroom that day.
2: And, you know, Karen's dad, he was not like, that's what y'all get, but he, he, you know, he recognized from what I remember that his, his daughter had had a rough time and that this was a sad situation. He was sorry that now we've been dragged into one.
1: Karen Orlana left behind two children and her father described after the conviction that she was, quote, a real good person, even though she had her problems, she was trying. Robert Fields Sr. continues exhausting his appeal options for that first-degree murder conviction and has since defaulted on claims challenging the nature and reliability of the evidence presented in the trial, contending that the evidence would lead no reasonable jury to convict him of said crime. He has submitted petitions to the Court of Appeals in Virginia, the Supreme Court of Virginia, and directly to the United States Supreme Court. He remains incarcerated at the Sussex 2 State Prison in Sussex County, Virginia, where he is expected to serve out the remainder of his life sentence. Robert Fields II stopped contacting or visiting his father a long time after he went away. He felt betrayed and abandoned. He held on to that animosity for a brief period, wondering how his father could do this to their family. But Robert Jr. didn't have time to wallow. His mother had been uprooted and he had to look after her. So he had a choice to make. Either let things completely fall apart even more than they already had, if that was even possible, or to get moving on rebuilding their lives.
2: So when you begin to recognize things as they are, in the sense of a bigger scheme, instead of looking at every single event in your life as singularity or causality, this is just this. When we get over, it's a peak. When we fall down, it's a valley. Life is full of valleys and peaks though, man. And life requires living. So I look at the entire spectrum of it, man, and I just say, you know, this is this. And I think that's what's always kept me in in touch with abundance. You know, I never took a loss because, you know, look what I've gained in experience and understanding. And that moment I decided either this shit's going to crush me or this is going to be the thing that pushes me. And I chose to let it be the thing that pushes me.
1: For Robert, it's learning to let go. Once he was able to do that, Robert Jr. was no more. He no longer identified with that name, as that was no longer who he was. He was becoming Black Lick, the artist who had made a promise to himself that he would pursue his art to his maximum capabilities in order to rebuild and obtain a better life. He began recording more diligently and performing live shows religiously and eventually made a name for himself in the independent hip-hop market. He was doing so all while working multiple jobs, not only to provide for himself, but for his mother as well. Blacklick supports his mother to this very day. She lives with him at his home in Richmond. Though he's consciously decided not to have children of his own, he goes to work teaching other children and continues public speaking while running a radio show and working harder than ever on his music. He eats well, goes to the gym six days a week, and has stopped drinking alcohol. The day he decided to take his last sip came at a very peculiar and memorable time, on September fourteenth, two 2012. He didn't realize it until years later, but this was the same day the murder occurred back in 2004. Coincidence, or perhaps it was the universe reminding Blacklick that he was on the right path, destined for a greater life than his father's. Blacklick now lives a curious and exploratory life. He has defied all odds and is a role model for so many young kids in his community. We wanted to get his perspective on how he was able to use such a negative situation as fuel to light a motivational fire to create and fulfill a positive life.
2: This is the story that could probably help people. You know, like if I can get through this, then, you know, anybody else if that if I tell them the story and I do it through this music, hopefully it'll help them, you know? And you know, I had to go through, I had to go through that fucking whole phase where people call you or they message you and they act like they care, but they just wanna hear the gossip. But you know what? Like, I ain't gonna let that play me because now it's my turn. Now you can't take this from me. I gotta take this, I gotta do something with it.
1: Blacklick's latest album was just released on Strange Famous Records, produced entirely by Mopes, entitled Time is the Price. The song Guilty touches on what it's been like to have a parent go away for life after being convicted of murder. But this story isn't about Robert Sr. And it isn't about if he is in fact guilty or innocent. That's not our place to say one way or the other. And frankly, the courts have already decided The story is, however, about Robert Fields II, also known as Blacklick, a man who has already proven to have broken that cycle of violence and crime that he was born into. The message here is that we all have choices, and we do have the capacity to change our outcomes to varying degrees, if we so choose to do so. But for those affected by the horrific murders we cover on this program, it's also important to remember those killed are often rendered invisible in death, especially if they made questionable choices while they were still alive. And sadly, in the end, the victims are the only ones left without a choice, because theirs were so unfairly and cruelly taken from them at the hands of another. Left behind in their wake, their loved ones, who have only the choice to determine how they will respond in the face of such tragedy. Blacklick's story is an inspiration for anyone who feels stuck, anyone who feels they can't escape whatever their troubling situation or circumstances may be. If you feel like perhaps you've been dealt the worst hand, the fact of the matter is you have not. All of our situations could in some ways be worse, and while Blacklick could never control his father's actions, he has learned over time that he can control his own destiny, And when you're feeling hopeless, know that there is light at the end of the proverbial tunnel if you make the effort to pick yourself up and try to find it. Don't take life for granted because you never know how long it's going to last or how bumpy a ride it's going to be.
2: It it is the opportunity. The real opportunity isn't you thinking, oh, I'm about to do some dope shit. It's everything going fucking wrong because it's how you react to how you respond to that that determines the outcome of what this universe has to offer you. And if you hold on to what you were expecting, you will always end up empty-handed. I promise you.
0: My heart gave me the tape. I sat in my kitchen with a plate. Watched my pops get eight, but I never lost faith. What I've been through. Enough trauma to make a menu. What I give you. All these rhymes, I feel the venue. They said they hired him not to win, but defend. I comprehended. Cause this was the type of story that ended as soon as it began, then they offered a deal. My pop said he'd rather appeal. If convicted, fuck it. Do what thou will, will thou do? When in the courtroom, the joke is on you. Without any tears, I sat in the rear. I watched fears come true. The sentence was life. The verdict was guilty. System is filthy. Shit could've killed me. Instead it just built me. Now they just feel me, but then they build me. Still I feel guilty, really. Where will you go? Who will you be? What will you do when you lose everything? Where will you go? Who will you be? What will you do when you lose everything?